Today we continue our seven-part sermon series entitled The Seven Last Words. This morning we come to the third statement that Jesus spoke from the cross. If you have your Bible, I invite you to take it. Turn to the gospel according to John. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, then stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. John chapter 19. Today I'll be reading verses 25, 26, and 27. John chapter 19. Let's begin at verse 25. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there, and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, to the preaching, to the understanding, and to the obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. Compassion is at the heart of the gospel. Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is likened unto it to love your neighbor as yourself. If you and I are going to be like Jesus, we've got to love like Jesus. And if we're going to love like Jesus, we've got to love God and love others. When you and I come to this third statement of Jesus from the cross, it portrays his tender, loving compassion. That Jesus is compassionate even at the point of death. Don't ever forget that in this moment, Jesus is experiencing excruciating pain. And it's no secret that when you and I are in pain, we're normally not all that loving. Yet in this moment, Jesus is loving even to the point of his last breath. You may recall the ancient words of Seneca, that first century Roman philosopher, who said everyone who's ever been crucified shouted from his cross. And from that cross, the one being executed would curse the day he was born and cuss his mother. Yet Jesus does not curse or cuss his mother. Instead, he blesses her. It would seem that Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of the fifth commandment. The fifth commandment is rendered for us in Exodus chapter 20, verse 12. Honor your father and mother. The word honor means literally to make heavy. It means to be weighted down. It means to heap honor upon. That every child is to make his or her parents heavy with glory and honor. That they heap so much glory, so much honor upon mom and dad. That they are weighted down and they're made heavy. Now, the way children do this is by, first of all, obeying their, children, obeying their parents when they are children. And then when they grow up and they get on their own, they heap glory upon mom and dad by the way they live their life. The truth of the matter is this, that the fifth commandment has no statute of limitations. It's not that you honor mom and dad until you're 18 years old. And then when you're 18 years old, free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, I'm free at last. And once you get outside the roof of your parents, then you can live however you want to. No, this commandment has no statute of limitations. So even today, I am doing my best to heap honor and glory upon my parents. You say, but pastor, how do you do that? by the way I live my life, by the decisions that I make, by how I do what I do. And even after my parents are long gone, hopefully I will still be heaping glory and honor upon them. The apostle Paul reminds us, this is the first commandment that comes with a promise. That the reason we honor our father and mother is so that it will go well with us. 
and that we will enjoy long life on the earth. God says this is beneficial. It is practical. It is very beneficial for you to heap glory and honor upon your parents. It would seem that this is exactly what Jesus is doing when he takes care of his mother through this third statement. Not only is Jesus fulfilling the fifth commandment, but he's also fulfilling his responsibility as the oldest son in the family, especially in that tradition where the husband of the wife is no longer around. Everybody believes that sometime during either the teenage years of Jesus or early in his adolescence, that his earthly father, the man named Joseph, died, leaving Mary as a very young widow to raise all the children by herself. And in that Jewish tradition, it fell upon the shoulders of the firstborn son to provide for the mother and to provide for the family. Jesus was the firstborn of that family. And so even to his very last dying breath, he is taking care and he is being a responsible son, even to his last dying breath. It is John who tells us that not very many people are standing with Jesus at the foot of the cross. You have uh, four ladies and one disciple, and that's it. Everybody else is ridiculing Jesus. Only those five individuals are standing with Jesus at the foot of the cross. In Matthew chapter 26, we are told that following the arrest of Jesus in the garden, that all of his disciples deserted him and they fled. Now, one of those ladies standing there, obviously, is his mother, the woman named Mary. Now, you and I realize that Mary is blessed and highly favored. That's how she's described in the scripture. We also know that Mary lived a very stressful life. For starters, just think about the scandalous pregnancy. Before Mary was pledged to be married to the man named Joseph, it became apparent that she was pregnant. What was conceived inside of her was by the power of the Holy Spirit. For the Holy Spirit had come upon her, and what was conceived inside of her was a gift from God. Yet nobody in town believed that story. Those cackling ladies would gather around the water cooler, and they would have other opinions of what happened. They would say things like, can you believe what sweet little Mary did? I cannot believe that she cheated on Joseph. Joseph is such a fine, upstanding young man. She's lucky to be betrothed to Joseph. And there she goes and she fools around on him and she sleeps around and now she's pregnant. Mm-hmm, I understand that. And the ladies concluded with this. They said, you know, once a cheater, always a cheater. This woman ain't gonna amount to nothing. And they had a lot negative to say about sweet little Mary. I really think that Joseph would not have believed Mary had it not been for that angelic dream where the angel of God appeared to him and said, Joseph, what is conceived inside of her is from the Holy Spirit and you shall give him the name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Because of that, Joseph believed Mary. Other than that, I think he would have done what he set in his mind to do, which was to divorce her quietly. When it came time for the Roman census, that was really a blessing in disguise because things were getting too hot and heavy. Things were getting too, uh, too uh, just frustrating there in the town of Nazareth. So Joseph took his uh, engaged wife with him and she was great with child. They made their way to Bethlehem because Joseph was of the line and lineage of David. And it came time for Mary to deliver. And she gave birth to a son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes and lied, laid him in a cattle trough in a Bethlehem barn. Certainly, Mary's life was stressful. 
Of course, who can forget those statements of Simeon? Baby Jesus wasn't only just a few days old and they, Mary and Joseph took him to the temple to dedicate him to the Lord, present him as is their custom. And as they made their way on the temple complex, it's Simeon, who the Bible describes as righteous and devout. He lays eyes on the holy family. He swoops in and he scoops up Jesus out of the arms of Mary, lifts the baby into the air and praises God and says, now my eyes have seen your salvation. You can now dismiss your servant in peace. Oh, Simeon had some great things to say about Jesus, all that Jesus was gonna do in his lifetime. And as he gave the baby back to his mother, Simeon said to Mary, and the sword will pierce your own soul too. I've been told by more than one mother that when a mom sees a child, her child, walking around, it's like watching her heart walk outside of her body. And Mary took this prophecy of suffering and she held on to it for 30 years. And on that day that Jesus was crucified, the pain of that piercing sore to her soul was more overwhelming than she ever could have fathomed. Certainly, the life of Mary was stressful. A couple of years later, when the wise men from the east came, they were bearing gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They were warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, but to return home by a different route and when that schizophrenic king realized he'd been outwitted by the wise man, he was furious. He gave the order to execute and slaughter all the boys living in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years of age and younger in accordance with the dates and times given to them by the Magi. And in the middle of the night, it is Joseph who has yet another dream. And the angel of God tells him to take Mary and Jesus and leave the country. Now, we're not talking about going to a neighboring village and hiding out for a couple of weeks. We're talking about leaving the country. Can you imagine tonight if your husband wakes up and, and he, uh, he shakes you and says, hey, darling, we've got to leave the country tomorrow. So get everything ready and we're going to leave the country tomorrow. You think to yourself, that would be quite stressful. And we live here in the 21st century. Can you imagine how stressful that would have been in the first century? They're going from Israel to Egypt. They stay there for a while. Until they get word that King Herod had died. And then they're given permission by the Spirit of the Lord to go back to Israel. But they can't go back to Bethlehem. For one reason, they can't go back to Bethlehem because Jesus would have been the only boy his age in the elementary school in his class. Because all those other boys have been slaughtered by King Herod. So Joseph decided to go to Galilee, to his town of Nazareth. And that's where Jesus was raised so that Jesus began to grow in wisdom and in stature and favor with God and man. Things were going quite well until you remember that infamous trip to Jerusalem during Passover when Jesus was about 12 years old. Mary and Joseph had gathered all the children. They uh, went to the holy city of Jerusalem. They enjoyed the festivities for the entire week for Passover. It got time to pack up all the things and head back home. And travel in those days was a little bit different than we travel today. It's not like they just threw everything in the back of the Honda Pilot and got in the car and drove for a few hours. No, they traveled in large family caravans, literally hundreds of people at a time. The fathers would walk with the fathers and they'd talk about man talk. And the ladies would walk with the ladies and they'd talk about lady talk. And then all the children would get together and they would play together as they walked together. 
They had traveled for a day, probably went 15 or 20 miles. It became time for them to camp for the night. Of course, Joseph thought that Jesus was with his mother, Mary. And Mary thought that Jesus was with his father, Joseph. When they got ready to camp, it became obvious that Jesus was not with either Mary or Joseph. It's stressful enough to raise perfection, but then you go and lose him? Is there anybody else in the crowd that wishes that Luke would have recorded that conversation? (laughs) I told you to get Jesus before we left town. No, darling, I clearly remember you said you were going to go get Jesus. You are such an idiot. Why don't you just be a spiritual leader and take responsibility of your house? Oh, oh, don't go there. I knew I should have divorced you when I had the chance. (laughs) The conversation probably went something like that. So they make their way back to the holy city. They make a mad dash. They finally, they find Jesus. And where is he? He's having holy religious conversation with rabbis in the temple. Did you not know, Jesus said, I had to be in my father's house. I promise you that in the weeks and months ahead, Jesus did not leave the eyesight of Mary. She watched him closely. And then a few years later, Joseph died. Joseph was Jesus' earthly dad. And somewhere in the teenage years of Jesus or early adolescence, Joseph died leaving Mary as a young widow and a single mom to raise at least seven children. It is Matthew and Mark who both tell us that Jesus had four brothers. And Matthew and Mark give us their names. There is James, the brother of our Lord. There's Joseph, I'm assuming Joseph Jr. There is Judas, not to be confused with Judas Iscariot. There's Simon, not to be confused with Simon Peter. So those four brothers and Jesus. And then the scripture also says that Jesus had other sisters. But the names of those sisters are not given. The number of those sisters are not given. It's just plural, which tells me there's got to be at least two. And so Mary and Joseph had at least seven children. Probably more than that. Oftentimes as uh, church pastors, we will sit around and we'll talk. And, and one of the things we talk about sometimes is how tough it must be for a single mom. That's got to be one of the toughest jobs in the church. And to organize all of those schedules, all those activities to be a single mom. Can you imagine being Mary in these days? I mean, how stressful it must have been. She had to organize the lives of, of seven or more children, all of their homework schedule, their soccer schedule, their meeting schedule, all the activities that they do. I mean, this would be mind-blowing. And she didn't even have an iPhone, right? I mean, she didn't have anything to organize this, all this stuff. I mean, she must have been at wit's end. Certainly the life of Mary must have been stressful. And then you come to John 19, which is our passage. And Mary is one of the women at the foot of the cross. And as she looks up, I know that Jesus is about 33 years of age. But Mary sees that little baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. That's her baby boy. Not only does she see him dangling on the cross, but she hears all the ridicule. Everybody is criticizing Jesus. Everybody is mocking him. The soldiers, the Pharisees, the crowds, even the 
Criminals hanging on his right and on his left. Everybody has something negative to say of Jesus. And you expect for Mama Bear to rise up inside of her at some point. But no word is recorded from her lips in sacred scripture. On this day, she suffers in silence. She doesn't say a word. Certainly, Mary was blessed and highly favored. But Mary also lived a very stressful life. John tells us that Jesus began to look around the crowd. And as he looked, his eyes fell on his mother. And Jesus said to her, woman, behold your son. I find it interesting that rarely, if ever, did Jesus ever call Mary mom. Have you noticed that? In the scripture, he always calls her woman. I mean, it's a term of endearment. He's not being rude. He's saying, dear woman. But still, it's woman. Woman, why are you bothering me? Woman, why are you including me? Woman, why do you involve me? Woman, it's not my time yet. Woman, why are you doing this? He never says, hey, mom, what are you doing? It's always woman. Even here, he addresses her as woman. Could it be that Jesus never wanted anyone in any generation to revere Mary too highly? As if to somehow worship her? As if to give her a title that would be similar to something like the sacred mother of God? Could it be possible that Jesus never wanted anybody to worship Mary, but to see Mary the same as we see ourselves, desperately in need of salvation, standing there at the foot of the cross, for Mary is standing where you and I need to stand, right there at the foot of the cross, and she is in need of salvation as much as you are in need of salvation. And Jesus says to her, woman, behold, your son. I know your translation may say, here is your son, but the word is behold. It means to look. It means to fix your gaze upon. It means to give your attention to. Woman, behold your son. What he's saying is, this is why I've come. I am completing my father's mission. I came to seek and to save the lost woman. Do you see me for who I am? For Jesus wanted Mary not just to see him as her son, but as her savior. Woman, behold the Son of Man. Woman, behold the Son of God. He wants Mary to see him as her Savior. He wants Mary to see him the same way he wants you to see him, as the Savior of the universe. Not just one who died a horrific death, and not just one who was tragically executed, but one who is the sovereign, sole savior of the universe, accomplishing the will of God, securing your salvation. You stand at the foot of the cross and you look up and you behold and you fix your gaze upon your Christ. It's so easy to get distracted, isn't it? With all the things that are going on around, it'd been easy for Mary to get distracted. But the words of the hymn writer are exactly right. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. Woman, behold your son. Jesus is not merely just taking care of his mom. 
He's not merely just wanting her to look at him as son, but to look at him as savior. And then Jesus knows that he's about to give the care of his mother to one of his best friends. Scripture says that seeing the beloved disciple standing there, he said, here is your mother. The word here is the same word as it was before. It's behold, it's look at, it's set your gaze upon, it's give your attention to, give your attention to this woman. And I want you to be my hands and my feet for the hands and feet of Christ are nailed to the cross. And so he's asking one of his best friends, the beloved disciple, be my hands and my feet, take care of this woman. Behold your son. It's universally accepted that the beloved disciple is John. Everybody believes that. Everybody assumes that. The John that I'm referring to is the John that's in the inner circle of the disciples. Peter, James, and John. This is the John who is the author of five New Testament books. The gospel that bears his name, the one you're reading right now, John. First, second, and third John, those letters tucked away in the back of the book. And then the revelation of Jesus Christ. So he's the author of all five of those sacred books. Every time in his gospel, he never refers to himself by name. He only refers to himself as the disciple Jesus loved, the beloved disciple. And so it's this beloved disciple that's given the responsibility of taking care of Mary. This morning I asked the question, why? Why did Jesus give John this responsibility? Why not give it to one of his brothers? Why not give it to one of the sisters? I mean, there are at least seven children, right? I mean, you would think that Jesus would give that responsibility to them, uh, that, that they need to be the ones taking care of the mother, Mary. But Jesus doesn't do that. Why is that? I think the answer is twofold. Number one, it should be noted that none of the siblings of Jesus are at the foot of the cross. And the second reason is likened to it. The reason they're not at the foot of the cross is because none of them believe in Jesus. In John chapter seven, verse five, it says not even his own brothers believed in him. Nobody in his family believed he is the Christ, the son of God. Not even his own brothers believed in him. Now, before we're too quick to criticize those brothers, let's just be honest this morning. It would be tough to be raised in the same house as Jesus, don't you think? I mean, how many times would it take before you got frustrated when you heard from your mother, why can't you be more like your big brother Jesus? Because he's perfect, would be your response, right? There's no way you can make as good of grades as Jesus. Simon comes home and gets a B plus. Is that the best you can do? Your big brother Jesus got another A plus. It's right there on the refrigerator. Ooh, right? There's no way you can compete with Jesus on the ball field. He's better at basketball and baseball and football, even kickball. He kicks it farther than anybody else. Now he's just showing off, right? I mean, it'd be so difficult to be raised in the house with Jesus. I can well imagine that maybe one day uh, James uh, was sick, a little under the weather. He didn't really want to go to school. And so he said, hey, mom, I, I think I've got a fever. Is it okay if I just stay home? 
And Jesus just walked by the bedroom and said, be healed. (laughs) Why did you do that? I mean, it would be hard, right? To be raised in the same household as Jesus. I mean, he's perfect. It wouldn't be a far fetch to think to yourself, he is so arrogant. He's got like a, like a savior mentality. He's going to save the world, right? It'd be hard to be raised in the same house as Jesus. Always being compared to him. Never being able to live up to him. You may resent big brother. So at the time of the crucifixion, not one of the siblings of Jesus believed in him. They weren't there. They weren't at the cross because they didn't believe in him. Now we do know that following the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, at least one of them became a devout believer. His name is James. We know that at least James became a devout believer. In fact, he was the leader of the Jerusalem church. Church historians call him camel knees. He had camel knees because his knees were so calloused and swollen because he was constantly on his knees in prayer talking to who? Big brother Jesus. And he had calluses on his knees. So they called him camel knees. And he was the leader in the church at Jerusalem. So eventually... Some of the brothers came around. Maybe all of them, I don't know. But at least James. And James is the author of that letter that's tucked away in the back of your New Testament. You know, the one that bears his name. That's James, the big brother, the little brother of Jesus. So why didn't Jesus give the care of his mother to some of his siblings? At the time of the cross, they weren't there. They didn't believe in him. Okay, you may ask, then why didn't Jesus give the care of his mother to another disciple? Why not Peter? He's the ringleader of the bunch. Why why not Peter? Or why not uh, Matthew? He's got a lot of money. He's a tax collector. Uh, Why don't you give the care to Matthew? What about Bartholomew or one of the others? Why, Why John? Once again, I think the answer is twofold. One is... uh, John is the only disciple who's there at the foot of the cross. There's something powerful about being at the foot of the cross. There's no other disciple who's there. All the rest of them have deserted and fled. Peter's denied even knowing Jesus. Judas, the disciple, is about to hang himself. Matthew is probably about to reopen his IRS uh, business office. Nobody's around. They're getting back to life as normal. It's only John, the beloved disciple, who's at the foot of the cross. So why John? Well, he's the only one there. But I think there's a second reason. I think that Jesus makes immediate decisions based on future knowledge. What I mean is this. At the very end of our passage, there's a little statement. If you're not careful, you can see it as insignificant. But the author tells us that from that day on, the disciple took her into his home. So the disciple, John, took her, Mary, into his home. Where was Mary? In his home. Where was she? In his home. In John chapter 20, just one chapter later, 
We are told that on the third day, the first day of the week, it's Mary Magdalene who gets up early while it's still dark. And she goes out to anoint the body of Jesus. And when she gets to the grave, she sees that the stone is rolled away. She assumes that somebody had stolen the body of Jesus. So she turns around and runs. She finds Peter and John. Somebody has stolen the body of our Lord. We don't know where they've placed him. And Peter and John make a mad dash for the tomb. Now, John, who's younger and presumably faster, he gets there first. But the scripture says that John does not go in to the tomb. He just stands at the entrance. And a few minutes later, Peter comes huffing and puffing. He barrels his way in, in good Peter fashion. He barges right in. He looks around. The scripture says he takes note of where the linen strips are and how the headpiece is wrapped up and placed on the rock. He sees, but he does not understand. And then John walks in. And the scripture says that John sees and believes. John chapter 20 Verse 10, then the disciples, Peter and John, went back to their homes. Who's in the home of John on that first Easter morning? Who's in that house? It's Mary. Mary's, could it be that while Jesus was writhing in pain, while Jesus was hanging on the cross, he knew that on the third day he was going to be raised from the dead. And he knew that the story needed to get out and get out quickly. And he wanted his beloved mother to be one of the first to hear the report. And he knew that Peter and John would go to the tomb and Peter would not yet believe, but John would walk in. He would see and believe. He would go home and say, hey, ma, you won't believe it. But Jesus got up out of the grave. The tomb is empty. I've seen it with on us. He's not there. I want to submit to you this morning that Jesus leaves no detail undone. Even as he's writhing in pain, especially as he's hanging on the cross, he's thinking about his mother and he knows I'm going to give her to the care of John. She's going to be placed in his home and he will go to the tomb on the third day and he will see that the tomb is empty and he will believe. And he'll go back home and report that her son has come back to life again. Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. Also, it should be noted that John is one of the only disciples that that will die a natural death. Everybody else will be martyred. Church historians say that Mary stayed with John for 12 to 20 years after the crucifixion. By that time, John may have been the only one still alive. Once again, Jesus knows what he's doing. He leaves no detail undone. That's true in Mary's life. It's true in John's life. It's true in your life. It's true in my life. Jesus knows your next step as certainly as he knows your previous step. There's no detail left undone. Why give Mary to John? Because John's there. And because Jesus makes immediate decisions based on future knowledge. I think Jesus is doing another thing. I think Jesus is redefining family. What Jesus is saying in this moment is what he's been saying his whole ministry. In his whole ministry, Jesus has been saying that grace is greater than genetics. The critics of Jesus, they resulted in name calling. They said Jesus was demon possessed. He was a drunkard. He was a glutton and he was out of his mind. And one day, early in the ministry, uh, Jesus was in a house and it was crowded. 
And his mother and brothers came down to take charge of him. Have you ever tried to take charge of Jesus? You ever tried to tell Jesus what to do and where to go and how to get there? It never works out well. But Mary and the brothers, they had come down to take charge of Jesus. They sent word through the crowd and finally the messenger got to Jesus and said, hey, hey man, your, your mom and your brothers are out there and they would like to have a word with you. And Jesus responds and I quote, who is my mother and who is my brother's? Probably not the wisest thing to say when people are accusing you of being out of your mind. But that's what Jesus said. And then the scripture says, pointing to the disciples. He said, here are my brothers and my sister and my mother. For whoever hears the word of God and obeys. That's my mother. That's my sister. That's my brother. What's he doing? He's expanding the family. He's redefining family. We talk about a faith family. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. In no way is Jesus diminishing his responsibility to provide for family. You have a responsibility to provide for your mom and your dad, your spouse, your children, your grandchildren. You have an obligation to your family. In fact, uh, Paul will say in the New Testament letter to Timothy, the person in Christ who does not provide for his family is worse than a reprobate. Treat him like an unbeliever. He needs to provide for his family. You have an obligation to your parents. You have an obligation to your children and your spouse. You need not neglect them. So don't misunderstand what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that Jesus expands the understanding of family because grace is greater than genetics. We don't just take care of our biological family. We take care of a faith family. Let me define it this way. If I were to ask you, how many children do you have? How would you answer that? Well, I've got two or three or five, or zero. You would answer it based on the number of biological children that you claim. But on any given Sunday, you know how many children you have here at First Baptist Pelham? 300. On any given Sunday, 300 of your children show up. They show up and they walk up and down the hallways and they are seated right in front of me right now as students. We have 300 individuals under the age of 18 on any given Sunday here at First Baptist Pelham. How many children do you have? At least 300. Because they belong to me and they belong to you. Not just the ones that bear my last name, but the ones that all of them that bear the name of Christ. They are my children. They are your children. That's why it can be stated that you have more in common with a brother in Christ who lives halfway around the world in Uganda than you do with Uncle Jim, who is lost, yet he comes to every Sunday afternoon lunch and every Christmas and every Easter and every birthday and every Thanksgiving, he sits across from you at grandma's table, yet because he's lost, you have less in common with him than you do with a person in Uganda who's a believer in Christ. How is that possible? Because grace is greater than genetics. It's only in the church where you can have at one time 350 moms and grandmothers, 250 dads and grandfathers, 300 sons and daughters, brothers and sisters in Christ. It's only in the church that we can have hundreds upon hundreds of family members. And Jesus says to John, listen, I want you to behold your mother. I want you to take care of her because you will be my hands and my feet to her. Jesus is redefining family. And all of this is made possible because of what he did for us on the cross. Today is Compassion Sunday. 
It's a day when we get to partner with Compassion International. Do you know there are probably 200 children right out there that need to be our children? Probably 200 children out there. And they're just waiting for somebody to come along and sponsor them. Not just to bring them out of poverty, but to hopefully bring them out of hell. To bring them out of that place of lostness where they can hear the gospel and respond in faith. I don't know about you, but I may have some other children out there. What about you? Woman, behold your son. Man, behold your daughter. Can you see that you have more children than just your biological children? You have a bigger family than just your biological family. Why? Because grace is greater than genetics. Let me conclude with one question. The last question is this. How close do you live to the foot of the cross? There is something powerful about being next to the precious bleeding side of Christ. There is something powerful about being at the foot of Christ. The reason he did not give the care of his mother to his, to his biological siblings was because they weren't there. The reason he did not give uh, Mary to anyone other than John is because nobody else was there. There's something powerful, something provisional, some blessing about being close to the feet of Christ. Something about being at the foot of the cross. The scripture tells us that there are some other disciples, but they follow at a distance. My friend, it is dangerous to follow Christ at a distance. If you follow Christ at a distance, you can so easily become distracted. Distracted with the crowd, distracted with the world, distracted with what other people are saying, distracted with other needs. If you follow Christ at a distance, that's dangerous. There's something about standing at the foot of the cross that place where salvation flows, that place where God's provision is granted in Jesus Christ. Now, about 15, 20 years ago, we used to sing this song in the church. It goes, Jesus, draw me close, closer, Lord, to thee. Let the world around me fade away. Jesus, draw me close, closer, Lord, to thee, for I desire to worship and obey. This morning, I ask you, how close do you stand at the foot of the cross? It would seem to me that Jesus is telling us through this third statement that he wants to be so tender with us and he is compassionate towards us. And compassion is the heartbeat of the gospel. But those who receive the blessing of Christ are those that are standing at the foot of the cross. Church, do not follow Christ at a distance, but be drawn close to his precious bleeding side. Heavenly Father, we bow before you and we do pray that in this moment of invitation that we will be drawn close to you. Oh, Father, we pray that you will uh, draw people that are lost, help them to know you as Savior and Lord. We pray that those of us who are your followers will not follow at a distance, but will get close to you. Oh, Father, we pray that those that are on the fringes will become members of this faith family today. We pray that you will move upon our hearts so that we will adopt children through Compassion International. We pray that we will move and respond in obedience to you because you are our big brother and we want to set our gaze and give our attention to Christ. So, Lord Jesus, we give you this invitation. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.